1: Well, can we give the worship team a round of applause? That was... Um... Thank you very much, uh, Peter, for your leadership there. That was uh... tough Tough to now come up and speak. So thank you very much for that. I uh, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've... Uh... I've been working as a counselor for over 17 years now. And, and it's been interesting and, and a privilege, really, because I've been able to connect with and work with men and women from virtually every, every conceivable background. I've worked with men and women, young and old. Uh, I've worked with alcoholics. I've worked with uh, the drug-addicted prostitute. I've even worked with the religious, perfect, clean-living person who hasn't done any sin except for that one time while listening to country music, and they swore in the country music, they swore along with it. <laughs> but the good news, God forgave them for listening to country music, so that was good. So, but, but what's interesting is my, my engineering mind, the way it works is it's always looking out for patterns. It's always looking out for how things operate and, and similarities between people. And despite each person have their own unique story, their own background, uh, a different environment that they've grown up in, I've come to discover that, that people are people. And, and everyone's deep down the same. And, and it's why the, the Bible, although it contains stories and writings that are, are thousands of years old, from people whose journeys had no idea what a Wi-Fi router was or what a 5G network was. They had no idea about those type of things, and yet their stories are as applicable to you and I today because people are people. And, and one of the things I've learned that is, is, I think, common to the human experience is this desperate need that we have to know if I'm OK. To know that I'm all right. And what I mean by that is this this sense of being okay, that there is a a deep-seated confidence, a a deep-seated knowledge that that I am of value, that I matter, that, that I'm I'm loved and I'm accepted, and I I belong. I belong somewhere, and all of that is safe and secure. It's not going to disappear if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or make a mistake somewhere. In fact, that, that desperate need for to be okay and to belong really is, is a driving force behind so many of our choices and the, the behaviors that we have. Both the, the good choices we make and the, the not so good choices we make. Because see, the question that we're all trying to answer, we're trying to figure out, is, is if I'm loved, what determines that I'm loved? How do I know I'm loved? What, what and who do I need to measure up to in order to experience that love? And, and I think while people are people, men and women, they try to answer that question a little bit differently. And I think you'll understand why they they answer it differently when you you see it, how they're they're trying to answer those questions. But for men, so much of it is based on their performance, what they do, based on their successes and their failures. And so John Eldridge has famously put it this way, the the question that haunts every man is, do I have what it takes? And it's a question that never goes away. It, It sort of arrives on the scene in those early teenage years and and I know people in their 90s that have still asked that question. Do I have what it takes? Do I still matter? Do I still have something to offer this world? And, and for men, that's such, a, that's such a critical, driving question for them. For, for women, they, they base their worth often on relationships. And you can start to see some of the difference between men and women here. And, and specifically, the impact they have on others in relationships. And so they ask questions such as, am I enough or am I too much? Can others, can others handle my mess? Do I, do I offer them enough that they'll keep me around? That yes, I, I add a burden, I add a bit of a mess, but you know what? It, it is offset by all the good, positive things I do, and therefore it's worth keeping me around. Both men and women, though, are trying to figure out, do I have what it takes? To, am, I, am I enough? Am I worthy of love and acceptance? Because if I am, then I'm okay. Then, I'm, then I feel safe. And, and it starts off these questions when we're very young, and, and we're looking to our parents to be the ones to answer that question. We derive so much of our self-worth and our, our value and, and who we are based on how they react around us how they treat us, how they, how they speak to us, how they, they spend time with us. And, and for some people I know, they never outgrow that struggle. I know I've worked with people in their 40s and 50s and beyond that are still hoping that their parents will accept them, that, that there's something that will change and they'll, they'll know that love of a mother or a father. The problem is this desperate seeking of approval is never quite enough and they're only left disappointed. Others, after feeling the rejection from growing up, they've, they've kind of moved on, and they've, they've now begun to look to their friends and to the, the, the schools and teachers, hoping that maybe they can find that acceptance, that place of value there. That maybe, maybe if I do well in school, maybe if I get the right kind of friends, right, the, the, these people that just get me, Then I'll be safe. And so we see so many cliques in school, the jocks, the nerds, the the drama and arts club, the the rebels, you know, all kinds of different groups, because they're just trying to find that group of people that will accept them. And then we discover romance and the opposite sex. And and suddenly now a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that's going to be the answer. And then it's marriage. And then, then it's a job and a career and, and recognition in that. And then, and then it's children. And, and then, then this desperate search to be okay. And, and the problem is, no matter what you've done, no matter how many accolades, no matter how much success you have, it's never quite enough. And the problem is because we come face to face with the same problem that all of mankind has been struggling with ever since the garden, ever since Adam and Eve left the garden, because they're struggling with how do I earn my worth and acceptance? What do I need to do? And we discover that famous uh, phrase of of Blaise Pascal, who said that that man is desperately trying to fill this God-shaped hole in his heart but it's so immense. No matter what they do, no matter what they attempted, it's just never quite enough. And so it's interesting when I start talking about God's love in this way, satisfying, you know what the most common response I hear from people are? I, I know God loves me. That's not my struggle. My struggle is my spouse doesn't love me or, or my kids don't respect me or, or the, my friends have rejected me and I, I feel all alone. And, and what we're doing there is we're exposing the lie that we've been believing, that in somehow that, that, that God's not enough. You see, this, this lie that we're, we're just, we're, we've all kind of been tricked into thinking is that love is conditional based on your ability to measure up to the standards and expectations of another, even if that other is yourself. This idea that, that love is earned, love is worked for, and, and I just gotta I just gotta work, I just gotta strive, and I just gotta know what the standard is. Tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and then I'll be okay. And then I'll be safe. And you see, this is why we don't we don't believe that God's love is enough, because it's not tangible. It's not something that I can wrap my hands around. It's not something I necessarily always feel. And it's, it's not always something that I can point to to say, well, look at these successes, therefore. But you see, it's this system of, of trying to earn this love and acceptance that God ultimately has decided or come to set us free from. Because it's the system of striving only leads to experiencing death. that emptiness, that despair, that frustration that we all wanted to run away from. And what's interesting, it's the same problem that, that all of the New Testament writers over and over and over again were trying to address. More than any other topic, no, more, more than any other subject in the New Testament, they speak to this idea of this battle between trying to measure up to the law for love and acceptance versus finding grace as a free gift for that value and worth. And so it's no surprise then that even today, there's still so much confusion on this topic love versus grace. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to, we want to take a look at why they're different, why they don't connect, why you can't have both at the same time. And because we fail to understand God's purpose for the law. So let's pray. Father, I'm struck this morning by the weight of this topic because this is real life. This matters. There are people here in this room, people watching online right now, Father, that are in this desperate struggle of feeling inadequate, feeling like a giant failure, feeling rejected, feeling unwanted, feeling like a giant disappointment. They just can't do enough. People who you, as Peter said this morning, invited that they would come to you. Tired and wearied and, and exhausted, that they would just come to you and be loved, be embraced. So I pray this morning, especially this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. That you would, you would share your heart with us more than your mind, that you would share your heart with us, and we would be able to see it and connect at that level. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if we recognize that Jesus is a Savior, amen? That's good. Otherwise, that changes the message, right? But we all recognize that Jesus is a Savior, which implies that you need to be saved from something, And we don't often like to talk about it sometimes in churches, but the the fact is that the reality is that since you and I arrived here on planet Earth, we were born separated from God. And that idea here of separation, I think, is really important because that, that separation means that we had no connection. We had no union with God. We had no opportunity to experience life from God. And so that's a bit of a big deal. And so many, many teachers and, and evangelists, they've tried to portray this idea, this picture as a, of having these two chasms, or sorry, these two cliffs with a chasm in between. And, and God's on one side and man's on the other side. And, and there's no way for man to cross over this chasm on his own, although he may try. He may try it through good works. He may try it through religion. He may try it through all kinds of different things. The reality is the divide is so great, it cannot be, it cannot be crossed. But to really understand the desperate state that man is on this side of the chasm, we have to understand the conditions of this chasm. It's not pretty. It is cruel. It is mean. It is a dog-eat-dog world over here where everyone is, is almost like thinking that it's a, it's a, if you win, then I lose. And so, therefore, I have to beat you in order for me to come out on top. And so it's an ugly, ugly, cruel world without Jesus, without God. And so what we see Jesus in his work on the cross is he's, he's created this bridge. And that's how they've often portrayed it. With these, over this chasm, the cross creates a, a pathway, a bridge that not only allows us to approach God, but also allows God to approach us. And so we can have this relationship with him. And, and I love how Paul puts it in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22. He says, but now, apart from the law, apart from your works, apart from what you do, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, his righteousness. How? Through faith in Jesus. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. This beautiful gift of righteousness in fact he calls it a gift in a few verses and in righteousness in a a very simple way it it means to be accepted it means to be approved It, it means to be okay it's the same word that's used for justified and so if you've been justified you've been made righteous and and really a better way to look at that is maybe to think of it in terms of this that you have been judged you have been weighed you've been measured you've been examined and you've been found to be satisfied. You've been proven to be OK. And it's a righteousness, which is by faith, not by your works, not by your effort, not what you do. And so we have the famous altar call that Peter kind of referred to, this idea of, of come just as you are. In fact, if we were in a Baptist church right now, we'd probably sing this song 18 different times until we got some people coming forward, right? and we do the altar call and it's come to Jesus just as you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you did it. It doesn't matter who you did it with. It doesn't matter that you have a country song on your preset of the radio. None of that matters. You come to Jesus just as you are and you are welcome to come in the midst of your dirty sinfulness. Amen. That's the gospel. That's how we approach him. That's actually the introduction to our gospel. But you see, now we, now we fall into the trap. We, we fall into this system again. Because you see, for us, love has been so reactionary. Love has been something that is earned. Love is something that is conditional. And therefore, it is also temporary. It's not, not long-lasting. Love is only as good as your last performance. Think about it in the sports world. Right, you have your favorite athlete, and we love to cheer for that athlete, and we're we're screaming their name until when? Until they stop scoring, right? Until Father Time sort of catches up with them, and then it's like, well, let's get rid of them, let's ditch them, let's trade him now while he's still got value. And so much of our worth and our value and our significance is tied up in the last things you did, your last performance. And so we're we're striving, either trying to earn that acceptance or be left with the condemnation and shame if you fail. And so the only way to figure out which one I deserve is to have some kind of a standard, some kind of a goal, something to measure myself up against. And this is where religion, as we've come to experience it at least, thrives with this kind of thinking. Perfect. Perfect. Because now I can give you the list of things you need to do, the the, the criteria that you need to now be evaluated by, by what you need to now work up to. But the reality is, it's a bait and switch. You see, it was initially come to Jesus just as you are, but now it's clean up your act or else that it was okay to be be dirty and a mess when you came to Jesus. But now, if you don't keep improving, then that's not okay anymore. And in fact, if you're really not improving, Josh, then God's going to punish you, or at the very least, withhold blessings in your life. And if it gets really bad, then he may even reject you on the day of judgment because you're such a disgrace. And so no one wants that. We don't want to experience that. And so we, 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 we look and we try to find these, the list of standards to, to figure out how to measure up to. And the, the standards you have is going to vary based on who you are and the role that you have. For example, there's, there's the law of good moms. It's not written down anywhere, but you all know what it is, Right? Like, to be a good mom means that, that you're always there when your kids are struggling. And you're always smiling, always happy with them. Right, Kim? Oh, always, right? That's where the mask actually helps sometimes, right? <laughs> Why are you wearing your mask at home all the time, Kim? So we, we have this idea that we're, we're supposed to have it all perfectly. What are some other moms? What are some of the other standards that you feel this burden? that you never feel like you're measuring up to. Shout them out. They keep changing, changing. yeah, as they get older. What are some of them, though? Keep a clean house. Yeah. Occasionally come for your husband. Well, that's, that's the wife. We're getting to that one. We're just talking about moms right now, right? Yeah, no, no, we're getting there. Write that down, though. So... But, yeah, like your kids, if they fail, then you're a failure as a mom. And so you're living and dying on their choices. But, dads, we've got our own set of laws. What are some of the laws that dads struggle with? Make sure your boys are men. Yeah. And whatever that means, by the way. (laughs) What are some other ones? Provide financially. That's such an important one for men. I don't know if you ladies understand that, but so many guys, that's what they think is the number one thing is I got to provide for my family. I got to make sure those bills are paid and the roof over their head and clothes on their back. What's interesting is that's the least important thing they need from us. But yet it's the easiest, and I think that's what we're drawn to because then we feel this need to provide for them spiritually. And how 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 do you raise up these little kids? How do you how do you be a leader to those kids and and on top of that be an example? That's a heavy weight on us. Now we have the law of good wives. Right? Cook for your husband. Clean the house. Look pretty all the time, right? Always be ready to go at a drop of a notice. What are some other ones? All the wives are a little nervous right now to share. I get it. I get it. Always be in the mood. Like I said, always be ready to go. The drop of a hat. What about husbands? There's a lot for us husbands. Be understanding. Be patient. Be romantic. Be romantic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Listen. Uh, uh, Tone again, Greg. Uh, Listen. Listen. Tone. Man. We got to figure that out, Greg. You and me. We got to figure that out together. Then there's the law of good friends. What's the law of good friends? Reach out. Always be available. Always be available. Right? In fact, reach out before they reach out to you. Right? You gotta, you gotta make sure you're checking in. How you doing? How can I help you? How can I su- support you? And, and and always, again, listening and caring. And then there's a lot of good Christianity. Serving, giving, witnessing, and, and being a great example of that to people. Then there's a law of good citizens, what's expected to be a good citizen. Is it based on compliance to what the government's saying all the time and everything? Or is it to actually stand up against the government from time to time? There's a wide gulf in there. And so you can see, now we're even in more trouble. Because sometimes these laws, these commands, they contradict each other. Well, what do I do? Because if I choose this side, then I offend this side. If I choose this side, I offend that side. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. I feel the law of good pastors. I really do. This weight, this pressure to, to be the best pastor to you guys that I I, I want to be. And it's a good desire. I, I want to I love you guys. I want to lead you well. I want to I want to develop this community of grace that we, we come together and we love and support each other while trusting Jesus and pointing everyone towards Christ. That's my heart and that's my desire. But there are a few things I feel as inadequate in as that. And so there's a temptation to evaluate myself. How am I doing? How am I looking after Norm? How am I looking after Richard? This this weight and this pressure. And if I go to it, the answer is, well, not well. Not well enough. Because that, that way of thinking is a setup. It's a massive lie. It's a deception that the flesh is trying to orchestrate in each and every one of our lives. Make no mistake, each and every one of us, the flesh is operating in you, trying to put you under your own unique set of standards and expectations. Believing that if I could somehow just figure out the secret code, if I could just figure out how to to push all the right buttons and, and check all the right boxes, then I'll find life. Then I'll be okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll have figured it out. So I just got to work harder. I got to strive more. I got to make good choices. And you know what Paul said about these people? In Galatians 3, in verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. My favorite translation on this one is still the J.B. Phillips. Uh, although there is a Hawaiian translation that is really, really good. You got to look that one up. But, um, but my favorite's the J.B. Phillips, because he says, oh, you dear idiots. <laughs> I love that. I, I even imagine that's the tone. Oh, you dear idiots. I don't know why I keep looking at you, Mike, when I'm thinking that. I don't know. <laughs> it's not about you. It's I know, I know. I'm getting worried myself here. a bad pastor. I get it. I get it. But he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This idea that you've been put under a spell before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of law or by hearing by, with faith? He's asking, how were you saved? Were you saved by measuring up to standards? Were you, were you saved by what you did? Were you saved by your competence, by your successes and your, or your failures? What saved you? By faith. And I I almost can imagine the Galatians, as they're they're listening to this, sheepishly answering. By faith. (laughs) And he goes on, he says in verse three, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I don't. I don't want to be critical of the church because the church is the bride of Christ and we are the church. But if I'm honest, verse three describes the church today. Quite frankly, it's described the church for the last 2,000 years. But this idea of this foolishness having been saved and begun by the Spirit, we now think that our effort, our hard work, our determination, our performance, our successes, and less failures is going to be the key for us. And so now it's, it's up to you, Craig. Get going. Paul says it's foolish. And, and I think we struggle with that because, because we don't know what to do with the law of God. And, and so what ends up happening is we, we feel like, well, if I, if I jettison all that, then I'm, I'm abandoning God's law. And, and that means that I think God's law is bad. Is, is that the case? In fact, that's what a lot of people have, have accused me in the past, of saying that I'm against the law. And I don't, I don't think the law is bad at all. I love the law. I just don't think it's for you and I anymore. And, and here's, here's why I say that, because... We've failed to understand what was God's intent and purpose in offering us the law. So we're going to look at there's there's really three purposes that Scripture revealed to us. So um, the first one is in Romans three twenty one, where Paul writes this: "For through the law comes the knowledge of sin." Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We become aware of sin. In verse uh, chapter seven and verse seven of Romans, he goes on. He says, "What should we say? Is the law sin? Is the law bad?" May it never be. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the first purpose of the law is to make us aware of what is sin. To define sin. Because quite frankly, if we were left to our own devices to define sin and what's not sin, we would come up with all kinds of different things. And so the law was given so that so we had a reference point. We, we could no longer debate or argue this is sin. For example, here in Ontario, we've got a, a, a law when it comes to driving your car and your cell phone. Came in, I think, as October 2015. Don't ask me why I remember that date because there's a lot of dates I don't remember. But I remember in October 2015, I think they brought in the distracted driving law, which says that if you're driving a car, don't be on your phone, you know, FaceTiming with someone while you eat a bagel, while you're, you know, doing your makeup and your hair and shaving your legs and playing with the radio, right? Don't do that while driving. Now, in September of 2015, do you think any of that was a good idea? No. No. Amen. You come to the front row here, right? Cheryl, go to the back, right? So you know where that's from. So, so it wasn't a good idea, but, but we needed a law because guess what? People were doing it. And so the law comes in and says, just so we're clear, don't do that. This is wrong. This is bad. Because again, without it, we're going to come up with all kinds of justifications. I mean, think about Barry, he would justify anything. The guy's so clever, right? And so we needed to have the line drawn for us. And that's what the law does, defines what's sin, what's not. As many people know, sin is an archery term, it means to miss the mark. Well, if that's the case, well, what is the mark? What's the target? And that's what the law does. It tells us what the target is. But here's the thing. Now that we know what sin is, now that we know the list, now we know what we should do and we shouldn't do, do you expect that the law is actually going to curb the amount of sin, that it's going to reduce it? I think it would make sense that it would. But look what Romans 520 says. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, just so we're clear, who added the law? God did, right? It's God's law we're talking about. The, the perfect 10 commandments, really all the commands of God are perfect. And yet it tells us here that God added the law with the express purpose so that it wouldn't reduce the number of sins and transgressions, but it would actually make it worse, Look what Paul says in Romans 7 and in verse 5. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. What does the law do? It doesn't curb, reduce, eliminate sin. It arouses sin. We're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Verse 8. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. You see, the second purpose of the law is to stir up sin, making it increase to reveal our need for salvation. It's not trying to contain, reduce sin. It's like putting a magnifying glass on it or throwing gas on this little flame to make it bigger, to make it more noticeable, to make it more obvious. And have you ever noticed that's what the law does? because it draws our attention on it. Let me illustrate. Richard, don't think about puppies. All right? Whatever you do, don't think about little cute puppies, especially if they're sitting in a basket or something like that. Don't think about puppies. Okay. (laughs) It's really important. In fact, uh, Craig, can you remind Richard from time to time not to think about puppies? It's like the one thing we have here. That in country music. Like, it's the one thing, right? It, it's, it's really important. Don't think about puppies. What, what are you thinking about? It's a safe place. You can tell us. What are you thinking about? Be honest. Truth be told. You're thinking about... Richard... It's a safe place here. We we love you. Can you can you be honest? How long have you struggled with this, this thought? How long has this been something that you've really dealt with? About a minute, yeah. When did it so it began when what? When you When I said don't think about puppies. Right? And that's what the law does. Because we begin to fixate and we begin to obsess on it. And that's what happened with Paul. See, he he thought. That the the command, the law that says don't covet was gonna be the answer he needed. That if I just don't covet, everything will be okay. And so that's what he began to focus on. If I don't covet, I'll be a better Christian. If I don't covet, I won't lead to other sins. And then he find he had every single covetous desire possible. Because sin took opportunity through the commandment and spun it into all kinds of sinful temptation. See, look what he says in Romans 7, 10, and 11. This commandment which was to result in life to me. I thought this was was going to make me okay and accept it. Proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law doesn't control, reduce, eliminate sin at all. It's the other way. It makes it worse. Which brings us to the third purpose of the law. In Galatians 3, 23 and 24, Paul writes, but before faith came, we are kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which is later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. I love the phrase, the child guide, this idea of, of not a teacher, but a governor, a nanny of sorts to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. There's that phrase again that we'd be made righteous by faith, that we'd be okay and accepted and approved by faith. But watch in verse 25, but now that faith has come, now that we have Jesus, we're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the child guide. We're no longer under the nanny that is the law. So you see, the third purpose of the law is to be our child guide to lead us to Christ for righteousness. You see, what the law does, is it beat you up? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, it's, the law is a minister of death and condemnation. Isn't that exciting? And it kind of breaks my heart that right now, in churches all over the world, what are some, some pastors doing to their, to their assemblies, to their fellowships? They're beating them up with the law. You need to do this, you need to do that. And if you don't, God's gonna be angry with you, and He's gonna hold the whole blessings, and you gotta make sure this is happening. And they're just getting beat up and condemned week after week after week. And that's not the point. We get so frustrated by this, it's supposed to lead us to run into Jesus. But what's really cool is now that we have Jesus. We don't need the law. See, Romans 6.14 says that for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. You've been set free from the law. You don't need the law anymore because we have grace. See, it's not law and grace. It's not some combination of the two. It's law or grace. Which one are you under? And we're under grace now. And so it's not that Jesus fulfills the law in me now. Because if that were the case, then guess what? That means that, that we would have to honor the Sabbath yesterday, which means no work, which might not be a bad thing, by the way, if I think about it. But, but you can't work on the Sabbath. And sorry, no, no bacon. I know, it's a deal breaker for many of us. But, but that's what the law demands. And yet we don't follow those laws. And Jesus isn't fulfilling that law in us. Instead, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is offering to live his life through us. And so that's what we're after. That's what we're looking for. And so it's not the law that I'm trying to follow or measure up to. It's trusting Jesus and experiencing the glory of him in me. You see, all that was made possible because of the cross, in Galatians 2 and verse, verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I may live to God. Think about it. What did the law demand? If you sin, it demands what? Death. The soul that sins must die. The law demanded your death norm, and so guess what God did? He arranged for it. So that you and I could die to the law. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, that when Jesus was up on that cross, all who trust, all who believe were placed in Jesus. Isn't that good news, Jim? The old Jim was crucified and he no longer lives, but Christ lives in me now as a new creation. And the life which I live in the flesh, the life that I live in this body today I live by striving and following the law. No, I live by faith. I live by trust. I live by depending upon the one who loved me, the one who loved me, the one who loved you, the one who loves you. That's what we trust in. But look what he says in verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The old King James says, I don't frustrate the grace of God. Because if if it came down to my striving, if it came down to my effort, if it came down to my work, then what was the point of Jesus dying on the cross? He simply would have said, well, here you go. Go to it. And you see, for many people, that's what they've seen the Sermon on the Mount to be. They look at the Sermon on the Mount as if it's some kind of a Christian ethic that you and I are now to, to strive under, to measure up under, and follow. But, but the Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing Christian about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about it. Well, isn't it in the New Testament, Ross? Absolutely. But was it under law? Or un, Under the old covenant or under the new covenant? It's under the old covenant. What Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount was he gave them the law as it was intended. It wasn't law 2.0, it was law 1.0. Because guess what people were doing? There were smart people like Barry we're watering down the law and coming up with all kinds of justifications. And, and I've heard some of these things. Like, you know, it, the law only applies in Jerusalem. It's sort of like the reverse Vegas. What happens outside Jerusalem stays outside Jerusalem, right? And that's how some people argued and justified it. And so Jesus comes along, and he restored the law to what it was. See, they thought, well, as long as I don't kill the person, I can think about it, and I can dream about it. I can fantasize about it. But if I don't do it, it's OK. And what does Jesus say? Nope. Now, if you, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder if you even lust after another person, you're guilty of adultery. He was, he was putting the standard so high, in fact, he says, it's got to, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees, which means you got to live better than Chris does. And all of us go, I can't do that. And that was the point. Because he summarizes, he says, here's how good you have to be. You just got to be perfect like your heavenly father's perfect. To which they all should have said, I can't do that. And Jesus would have said, amen. Now come to me. Come to me, not just for your salvation, not just for the ticket into heaven. That's just the introduction. Come to me and trust me right now, Norm, that I love you. That I, that I accept you. That I embrace you. And Jim, you're okay. I know what you've been struggling with. I know what you've been going through. But you're okay. Because God's made you okay. Even on your worst day. No matter what you've been going through, that is ours. And He's asking us to trust that. Whether you feel it or not, trust it. There's no standard, there's no measurement. You're not being uh, graded, you're not being evaluated. That was the cross. It is finished. Jesus has done it all. And now what we get to do is we get the opportunity to just enjoy the relationship we have with him. Enjoy the knowledge that you're loved. And by the way, a lot of people also then go and struggle. And they say, well, what about the others that try to put me under law? What about the others who say that that I have to measure up to their standards and expectations? That's, That's what Joy says to me a lot. I'm not sure who she's talking about. but And the answer is, it doesn't matter what others do. Because the only one that can put you under law is yourself. And so we're called to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given you and I. And when they try to put you under the standards, when they try to put you under the law, You don't have to accept it. Instead, you can know and you can be confident in the fact that you are loved by Jesus, Kat. That's it. And now that Jesus is living in us, we trust him, and that's what keeps us on the right path. Not the rule book, not the standards, not the law, but Christ in you and me. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for this truth of freedom in you and what you have accomplished, what you've purchased for us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we we go home and as we go through this week, that your Holy Spirit would convict us now, would convince us about this truth of righteousness, this truth that we are always loved by you. Because the reality is your love being unconditional isn't surprised by anything. You're not reacting to our, our choices in our behavior. You know all the choices and behavior. And you've already addressed and dealt with all those bad choices. You've dealt with all of our sins, even that one, and that one, and all those ones too. And now your grace is there just waiting for us to trust, to embrace right now, much more than salvation, just to know that we're, we're safe in you, which frees us up to love others now. In your name we pray, amen. You've
0: been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.